Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I am your host, Philip Coover. I'm a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. And today we have John McCulloch of Belgravia Group, the Chief Executive Officer. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. I'm always happy to talk to pro-Chicago folks who are doing doing deals in Chicago. And so, um, you know, I've known the name of Belgravia Group for decades, um, since before I got into commercial real estate, you'd see it around. And so tell us a little bit about the company. Yeah, uh, decades is a good way to describe it. Uh, the founder of the company, Buzz Ruttenberg, uh, is, is 82 years old. He acts like he's 60. Still an active participant in the in the business, although uh, has uh, over many years tried to take a step back and stealing a line of his. He likes to be the inspiration, not the perspiration today. Um, I but, like that. Buzz, Buzz, uh, you know, marks the start of the business activities of Belgravia Group to when his father uh, started buying some Lincoln Park apartment buildings, some small buildings uh, in the late 40s. Uh, so we we consider ourselves a 75 plus year company, um, and and Buzz has been active in the business since he finished college and and almost entirely in Chicago. Uh, and I had the, the good fortune of meeting him and joining uh, this firm about 19 years ago. That's that's great. Yeah, no, I was doing the math on that. On uh, glad you tied his father into it too. I was like, was, was Buzz buying real estate when he was? Ten years when old. He was six, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was. Uh, that's really cool that it, it dates back that far. So you've been with the company for nineteen years. Very long run. He clearly believes in succession planning. Um, you know, how did you? What What's been your your arc at the company? Sure. So yeah, I this was my first job out of college. Uh, I went to University of Wisconsin. Uh, moved down to Chicago, and I, I grew up in the D.C. area. So kind of. Tracked across to the Midwest, um, moved to Chicago shortly after graduation. Uh, my older brother has been working for his firm for 22 years, uh, which is syndicated equities uh, oh, yeah. r- run by Richard Kaplan. And my brother's relocated back to the D.C. area, but has continued to be Richard's partner in that business. And so right out of college, uh, Richard was kind enough to offer me an internship and just uh, help me do some networking as I was seeking a job. Um, and, and you mentioned you've known the Belgravia name for so long. I didn't. I was fresh into Chicago, and I recall Richard calling to my desk and saying, hey, I just got off the phone with my friend Buzz. Sounds like he's got a job opening. You know, why don't you run home and grab your, your sport coat? He'll see you at 5 o'clock. And said, great. Who's Buzz? What does he do? And Richard said, oh, he, he does some condo conversions every now and again which was a total lie. Richard knew exactly that Buzz was about to go build 400 units at 600 Lakeshore Drive, but he didn't want to really want to tell me anything. So uh, I sat down with Buzz that day. Uh, that was August of 2004. Um, and we met, I guess, I guess you'd say we hit it off. And uh, I, I took a position in September as the internet sales representative for Belgravia. Uh, I had zero interest in sales. Um, but I, I met Buzz, I walked around the office, which is covered in, in a, a large part of his art collection, which was just kind of jaw dropping as a young man to walk in and see just this wonderful place to work. Um, 
And I said, I'll take whatever you got. Um, I, I rode with that position for all three months. Um, and there was, there was actually more, it, it was a new position. I was, my, my job was to take an inbound web lead and convert it into an in-person sales center appointment. And as fortune would have it, we had just grand opened 600 Lakeshore Drive. So my job wasn't very difficult and it proved to be uh, more lucrative than the company expected in those first few months. And they were about to kind of rejigger my compensation and they said, oh, but wait the you know assistant project manager is moving back to wherever he was from on the east coast that position is open and we can offer you that at half of what you're making in the sales role um and i knew i didn't want to do sales so i took a you know it was a project assistant was my job title role three months into the company um and have just learned the business from buzz from alan lev who's buzz's partner of 35 years um, and have, you know, grown within the company um, to various positions now uh, fortunate enough to be to be running, running the business. That's really cool story. And tell us a little about the core business, because right now I, I get a lot of multifamily discussion. People want to build multifamily buildings. They want to buy and trade multifamily. But you guys do condos. And that's, um, you know, I, I'm just kind of curious. uh how that became the core business and why it stays the core business. Yeah, um, you know, some of that probably goes back to where the name Belgravia Group came from. Um, Belgravia is a very high-end neighborhood in London um, and really beautiful area. And Buzz had studied at the London School of Economics. So as he was naming some projects in the 80s and 90s, he was grabbing some bits from his experience there. And he built Belgravia Terrace, I think it was late 90, excuse me, late 80s into early 90s, um, which was a townhome project at uh, Wisconsin and Sedgwick in Lincoln Park. And the as the project was a success and sold out, Buzz was then receiving phone calls from brokers or prospects saying, are you going to build more Belgravias? Are you going to build more Belgravias? There was this echo of it. And he said, hey, this name kind of is sticking. Maybe I can build more of these things. And those were townhomes. And we built a lot of townhomes in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. But the for sale condo or townhome business, um, while there have been some smaller projects done prior to that and Buzz had done retail and he had an office portfolio, there started to be a, a, a rhythm or cadence to doing for sale product within the company. And by the early 2000s, it was really our core focus. And, and that continues to today. We've done apartment, we've done rental uh, projects. We did Ravenswood Terrace in uh, 2012. That was 150 units there. So we're opportunistic. We're, we're a smaller company. So if we find the right opportunity that makes sense to us, we'll do it. But we also stick with our bread and butter. And we know condos. We feel very comfortable in how to lay out a great unit, how to underwrite um, a condo project, how to assess one block versus the next in terms of, of values. And when it, if it's not broken, um, you know, we, we stick with it. And so we've, we've continued on that. It's a little more challenging today in Chicago um, with condo values have been pretty flat for the past couple of years, so that hasn't helped balance increasing construction costs and other issues. Um, but we're, we're still out there looking for primarily condo deals, although we're, you know, we're, we're always poking around to see if there's an apartment play uh, that would work for us. 
Yeah, no, that there's several things I want to get into a little bit that you touched on there. Um, but before I do, I was just as somebody who, since you've been at the company so long, I was just curious, like how the 2008 recession, like what was your role in the company for that, like four years? I came out of law school in 2007, wanted to do real estate transactions, and then there weren't any for like four years. So I had to do litigation, foreclosures, evictions, mostly real estate related litigation, bankruptcy actions. But I was until I could get back to doing transactional work. Um, but I was just curious what your role was during that period and how the business did during that that period. Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, it was probably titled project manager, senior project manager, or whatever that may have been in, around that time. So I I say I was lucky in the timing of it that I was active and involved but didn't have my name signed anywhere um, in, in, in with our with our projects and so we really had three active projects through the 0809 period um, one of the most important things I learned is through 06 and 07 um, we underwrote a ton of deals that did not make sense to us and we were seeing many other developers continue to push forward with projects that ended up giving them major issues. And, and we stuck to kind of our principles of how we underwrite. Um, and I think so it was 565 Quincy, um, but was kind of the biggest issue we had to work through at that time, which was studios, ones and twos, um, which was a market that got hit harder than any other, I think. And that project broke around memory serves me correctly, June of 06. So that was the last project we started prior to 08. Um, so you have to imagine, you know, in 18 months leading up to, or, or slightly more to Bear Stearns, um, we were underwriting dozens and dozens of deals. And had we taken another one on, could have been a different outcome. Um, so that kind of principled view of how to approach projects was super important for me to, to learn and experience. And then during the, you know, the, the downturn, I think acting quickly, you know, we, we were, we had 600 Lakeshore Drive where we paid off the construction loan in January of 09. So we didn't have pressure there. We had what ended up being a very successful project and 565 Quincy, which was half sold in, in a pretty good place but then ran into Fannie Mae changing regulations. Okay, what does that mean? I think we were the second project in the state that got approved for, uh, under their project eligibility uh, requirements, PERS is what they call it. Um, so acting fast, responding to the, the situation, and we had to cut prices. We knew we could not just sit out there and not sell homes. That was not gonna end well. And we went and we had, we had sold half the building. We had closed roughly half that building. And we knew a significant price cut was coming. We went and sat down with all the you know, new owners in this building and said, here's what's coming. Um, this is the market. We can't sit here and, and do this. And, and the best thing for you as owners is to have a full building, even if it means your paper value of your half million dollar condo today is actually four hundred thousand uh, dollars because that's what we're going to sell a comparable unit for tomorrow. That will come back at some point. We didn't know; no one knew exactly what that timing and and, and dynamic would be. And, and we ended up getting a very positive response. People said, "We get it. 
I, they, we, this is the position we're in. And so getting ahead of the market, listening to the market, um, I think we outsold every other project um, throughout 09 um, and paid off our bills, got, I think, most, most investor money back on that project, and we're still here. Came back out um, fairly unscathed and, and ready to do more. Yeah, I mean that that's like the most optimistic story I've heard from that time period. So you guys did well considering how challenging it was. Um and thanks for walking us through that. That was that was just really interesting to hear how how you hand, navigated that circumstance. So we're recording this on June seventh, and I say that in case this is released in July or August and four banks have failed four more have failed since then. But like how are you guys kind of feeling about the macroeconomics? Um that we're seeing today with some of the regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank and others that have had their, their challenges, uh, to put it lightly, um, and just sort of the macroeconomics and then, and then we'll get into kind of the Chicago specific climate. Sure. You know, I, the, plenty has been written already on Silicon Valley or First Republic and, and certainly Silicon Valley feels anomalous, uh, to the broader banking industry, given their concentration in tech. Um, and what I think was a $42 billion bank run in 24 hours. So there's, there were certainly some scary moments there and, and um, everyone going, okay, how much cash do we have sitting in what banks? Um, but I do think the government coming in and, and effectively propping up deposits um, gave everyone a little reassurance that we don't need to continue having these runs on banks. Um, but it, it speaks to the broader sudden change in interest rates that started in the fall, right? The, the fastest interest rate climb I think we've ever seen on the Fed rate. Um, and it, it, you know, you mentioned that we've really been a condo only player. So many of my contemporaries that are in the multifamily space are, are stuck in a way, right? We, they don't know how to price, whether it's a new development underwriting, what's our, what's our target yield, or it's an asset that they're holding that they thought about selling. Where, where is that market going to be? Um, so I think that portion of the, that asset class is a little stuck. There's deals that'll get that, that'll transact. There are deals that get financed. There's always exceptions, um, but broadly speaking, I think there's just a, a great level of uncertainty. What we're seeing in the for sale space is a little different. Um, certainly, our our financing costs are higher because we're paying a higher interest rate as the as uh, rates went up. That's not a significant um, issue in terms of underwriting. That's just an, an extra dollar we got a we got a budget. And as we entered this year with rates climbing, there was certainly concern about the impact it would have on our sales velocity, both in Chicago and we have a project now that's uh, just broken ground in Scottsdale. And if you would ask me January 1st, let's call it, you know, what's, what's your outlook for this year? And I, I'm sure it would have been wrong, but the outlook would have nevertheless been Chicago. And, and we have a project in Chicago, Triangle Square in Bucktown, where we have, I think we started the year with about 20 units left to sell, average price point $800,000. So you've got 600 to a million and that's that 30 or 40 something buyer predominantly that's been attracted to that project. Well, Scottsdale, it's a lot of empty nesters, second home buyers, a more affluent buyer. I would have said January 1st, Triangle Square is going to be tough. That, you know, doubling of interest rates, doubling of mortgage payments is really going to be brutal. But I think there's some resiliency in the, 
in the more affluent market. The Triangle Square product, we've sold, I think, eight units so far this year. It's been great that that rivals last year and when we had 3% interest rates. Um, and in Scottsdale, things have not slowed down. We're half sold with that project. And there is just no product on the market. People that locked in rates, they've got their velvet handcuffs. They're not, they're not moving, right? So there's a real limit in the supply there. There's no new construction. Everyone else has been building rental. There's just not a lot of condo products. So if someone wants a condo product, you've got less supply just by virtue of people locked into rates and no new construction. Um, I, the CEO of Toll Brothers was on CNBC a week or two ago and said, historically, the number of new construction um, products sold as a percentage of all um, homes sold is 10 to 15 percent. And right now it's 30 to 35 percent is the new product just speaks to the lack of supply. Um, so the movement in rates certainly creates a number of difficulties throughout the macro economy, throughout various asset classes. But on the for sale side, we've been somewhat insulated uh, just by the lack of supply uh, that, that helped us with the current projects we have uh, on the market. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. You know, I know a lot of people, I live out in the near west suburbs, and a lot of people, as they, you said, the 30 to 40 market, you know, I'm in the, the older side of that, but as a lot of people grow in their careers and they want to have larger families, they want to kind of get move to a new place, and there's just not much for sale. Like, nobody wants to let go of these 3% mortgage rates that they've accumulated over the past couple of years. So like you have to have a real need to sell. So I would imagine these, this new product that you're bringing to market and especially in trendy, desirable areas like Bucktown, I bet, you know, there's plenty of people that, that would love to buy something like that. Yeah. I, I think the, notwithstanding the, the, the vast number of people that have these great interest rates, life happens, right? Yeah. People form, you know, couples, marriages, kids, divorces, deaths, whatever it is, life happens. And that, um, that leads to, that's a catalyst to household formation, to needing new space, bigger space, smaller space, whatever that is. And, and, and sure, so there's a, a limit to how many people want to leave. You know, people may, may delay, right? They say, okay, you know what? Maybe we will stay in this two-bedroom condo with the baby on the way. We thought we were going to move to something bigger, but I bet we can make it the first year. Let's ride this interest rate out. And then they'll, they'll push out. I mean, I think we saw the, the uh, opposite of that during COVID where a lot of people accelerated a decision to move to the suburbs. They said they were probably thinking when we have kid two or whatever, or kids are old enough for school, we'll, we'll finally push out to the suburbs. But that was two to four years away. And they, in COVID they said, no, we want a backyard. You know, we're, we're kind of stuck. Yeah, home so right. I, I think a lot of that has settled out now. Um, and we're, we're catching up in a way. So how about, how is the construction process from construction costs to the Chicago restrictions and requirements? So how is building in Chicago? You guys have been doing it a long time. Uh, how do you guys feel about building in Chicago right now? Yeah. Uh, costs have done nothing but go up for a handful of years, if not longer. I have a, I have a chart I keep, um, 
we've we've been of our we, so we've been building this the CA product. It originally started as Carpenter and Aberdeen were the two streets the original building was on, and it was dubbed CA. And kind of an a, a, an echo of the story I told of the beginnings of Belgravia. People would call Buzz and say, "Hey, will you build more Belgravias?" People would call us and say, "When are you going to build more CAs?" So we've just completed CA six, uh, the sixth iteration of that project, and the it's a very similar building type and very similar unit types. It's actually an interesting product to track in terms of construction costs. A decade ago, it cost us $135 a foot to build. Today, it's at least $235 a foot to build. And it's a very efficient product because you hear there's some buildings that say they're in the high 200s out of just different characteristics. But I mean, that's the level of increase we've seen um, over the past decade. And just in the past three years, we've probably gone from the 190s or right around 200 to about 230 um, on that on that type of product. Um, the in light of that, it's certainly making it more challenging to build. Apartment rents have really tracked along with construction costs, um, and up until the increase in interest rates as of late, cap rates have otherwise supported um, those costs as well. So you've seen all the towers of you know, 200, 300, 400 unit uh, multifamily rental buildings, they, they were still penciling for all those years as prices kept going up because the capital was there and the rents were climbing. In Chicago, the same was not necessarily true for condo values. Um, condo values and velocity or, or, or volume of units sold has been pretty flat. We've, we've had, a, we had a, a nice enough tick up in condo values. We were building a lot in the West Loop, the West Loop story is, you know, very apparent just by walking through this neighborhood where I'm sitting today. Um, so units we were building a decade ago that were half million or $550,000 are regularly selling almost at a million dollars today. That's, that's what allowed us to continue building as prices went up as well and as land values went up as well. It, it's really um, the condo market has been very flat the past several years. Um, I took a quick look at some data from 21 to 22 a few months ago of kind of the broader downtown from Old Town to South Loop, west to the West Loop, Bucktown, Wicker Park, and looked at our core pricing, half million to two and a half million, which would be the general product we build. There's roughly 800 units sold in 21 and 200 units sold in 22. I mean, that's just a staggering drop in volume. And so when we say, okay, we want to build another 50 units, but we have to pre-sell 25 of those just to get out of the ground. Well, that means I got to own more than 10% of the entire downtown condo market selling off floor plants and renderings. It's a very challenging proposition at the moment. Um, and so we're not done. We're still looking at deals, but we really need to start seeing things change in Chicago. The empty nester really isn't buying downtown like they used to. And for a long time, our bread and butter was a, was a, a very strong mid-market to kind of entry-level luxury product. Well, as costs go up, it forces us to be more and more into that luxury market. We just can't build the more moderately priced homes that we may have a decade ago or 20 years ago. Um, and that market gets just by virtue of price point, that market gets thinner. Um, and, and, and there's a double whammy in Chicago right now with a lack of buyers interested 
in that product at that price point. And, and that's in part, there's a long window, but that's in part why we're in Scottsdale now, because there's strong population growth. There's, I think Maricopa County had the largest growth in boomers um, in 21 or 22. I forget the year that data was put out, but uh, they're there um, and, and they're buying. Yeah, that's a great segue. So you've done, Belgravia uh, has done its first move outside Chicago as far as I know, uh, and they've gone to Scottsdale. Uh, a lot of people like the Sun Belt, a lot of people like the Southeast. Uh, you know, why Scottsdale? And um, how, how's everything going for you down there? Sure. Yeah, so the, the, the conversation of what else beyond Chicago should we look at probably started two and a half to three years ago when we saw some of these dynamics occurring and, and challenges. And we, we've never desire to be some huge developer with 100 employees. We say, you know, we just, you know, kick off two to three projects at a time, you know, and one starting, one middle, one finishing. And and we said, you know, okay, well, maybe we can't do two or three things in Chicago. We can only do one and two. Let's look elsewhere. And my partner, Alan Lev, has been visiting Scottsdale for 20 years. He's had a, a home there as of late. Um, and so he kind of raised his hand and said, I know Scottsdale. This is a great market. Alan's uh, an inveterate networker. He's just always out meeting people. So just by being there, he already had real estate connections, be it brokers or just other people uh, within within the market. And so that kicked off our process of Alan reaching out saying, hey, we're poking around. Send us sites. Let's start looking. And it took, we looked at one other site before the one we're doing now and kind of dug in. And then we ended up finding um, what's now Portico, the project we're building, um, almost two years ago. And started working. It's part of a broader master plan. And we've we've learned a lot. Anytime you walk into a new market, you're going to you're going to learn the, the ways of the, whether it's the political body, the permitting process, the contracting market, all the different consultants, it's all new. And we're, we're so used to uh, our routines in Chicago. I mean, I, we've been using the same HVAC contractor, AirRight, for 25 years. I never have to blink that it's done right in a building, right? There's, there's little things we take for granted. I visited Scottsdale recently and I was just struck by the amount of outdoor activity there is. It doesn't have some of the same density feel that you get in kind of the Chicagoland area. So like I can certainly see why it's attractive. Do you guys have uh, another project that you're, you, you, you mentioned like the three projects, kind of like one finishing, one in motion, one just starting out. Do you have another one going there or you have just you're looking for one? We we're, we're, we have one. We have a couple LOIs out there. We're negotiating on one. Um, the the Portico project is a large project, um, so that's plenty to keep us busy at the moment. It's probably it's, you know value wise probably twice of what some of the things we've done more recently in Chicago. But we are actively trying to tie something up and get to work and you know keep the pipeline healthy there for you know a year from now plus or minus to be to be breaking ground on something new. How about amenities? Do you all put a, a lot of effort into amenities for your projects or you scaled back? Just curious. Yeah, in, in Chicago where we've done, you know, 40 to 70 unit buildings, there hasn't been a heavy demand for amenities. We've done fitness rooms are smallish and easy. 
Um, our Rennell project uh, on Wabash next to Trump Tower has a great roof deck and community room and a fitness room, but not like you've seen in the three or 400 unit apartment buildings with the huge pool and the, you know, just the over the top amenities. And, and, and those things cost money um, for assessments. You know, it all, it all kind of gets baked into a rent check, but when you're seeing your assessments every month, I think there's a different perspective on that. And when we're building 50 units, you put in a pool, it it really adds up. Um, so we've, we we haven't done that. Now in Scottsdale, uh, the market expects something a little different. It's 112 units, so it's a little bit of a bigger project. You have to have a pool uh, in Scottsdale. That's a that's a prerequisite for anything you do. And so we'll have a clubhouse, we'll have a fitness center, and then the the Portico project is nine buildings across a five acre site. So then we created some pocket parks. There's a separate spa area there's a separate grilling area so that people can congregate in smaller gatherings and not always be kind of in the one central hub uh, of an amenity area and we think that'll work nicely for that project all of that makes a ton of sense to me i mean having lived at a few different places and visited many in chicago i always thought the amenities arms race was a little bit overdone just because you, you go take a tour of these places and very few people are actually using the movie room. Because you know, people actually just want to watch movies by themselves and not talk to other people like on a Sunday. Or on their new Apple visor, right? That's yeah, little. right. <laughs> exactly. And so like, you know, all, all you end up seeing used is maybe the fitness room or like a rooftop. Um, so I, I think that that's really smart to, you know, factor in how much do people really want to pay for their use of these amenities because they're not free to take up the space and the time and the operational cost as well, especially of a pool in Chicago where it's only accessible two, three months a year um, right. or usable. So that, that all makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, is there any other, and also but while we're, while we're at it, I always thought the arms race for, amenities in office i know you don't do office but i just never got that like the big buildings you just spend tons of monies on amenities for you're like i'm here to work and then i'm gonna leave <laughs> like i'm not <laughs> i'm not really just like hanging out in like the activity room of an office building yeah. but um the, the, the psychological nature of it is the same right if, if you're renting an apartment at the point of decision you envision yourself using all of these things right and i think the same goes to the decision maker of a uh, of someone who is leasing an office for a large company saying my employees will appreciate this and use this so that that moment and it, it makes sense yeah um that, why that why that's there no that's that's why we have you on john yeah <laughs> you know exactly what they're thinking in terms of that it's that three months of uh sales you did that's right 19 that's years right. ago an in, in, instrument of my formative years right yeah well um what sort of is there anything keeping you up at night in terms of challenges you see in the market or is there anything that's just like really worrying you about what's coming or you think everything's moving along just normal difficulties nothing particular is, yeah, is bigger um, than great, others great question you know if you again if you go back six months from now where i i had not yet broken ground and opened a construction loan and signed a general contracting agreement for portico i'd say okay those were the things keeping up at night but that that's all done i closed that construction loan on my birthday in may that was a, that was a good birthday present to myself Very nice. um 
and and now I'd say a little bit. I don't know if it keeps me up at night per se, but but what kind of forces me to rack my brain is that there's just this fog in, in the market in terms of what's next. You know, we're, we're we we see the demand we're getting in Scottsdale that leads to some fairly obvious uh, decision making on what does our next project want to look like. What you know what bedroom count and unit size and product type has been appealing in that market and then how do we okay how do we iterate and and do some more there um but when we look at chicago it's you know banging our head against the wall trying to make condo numbers work okay maybe we can do a 50 to 100 unit apartment project you know we, we i don't need to go compete in fulton market against everyone else that's just not our business model let the People that are doing that and do it well continue to do it. Maybe we can find some more neighborhood-centric uh, products to build. And it's just really challenging, as I mentioned earlier, what am I underwriting to? What's the cap rate tomorrow? What are real estate taxes really going to be tomorrow? There's a number of things that I, I call fog, right? That is, we're trying to set a vision for what's next, uh, what's, what's a great next project for the company to see through those things and take conservative bets. Uh, in this environment, and actually get something to work, right? If you're way too conservative, you're never going to be in business, right? You gotta, at some point, you gotta, you gotta take the bet. Um, and so it's a little bit of that balancing right now, it's, and, and having to be patient. Um, we're we're concluding a cycle, that's obvious. We're kicking off some something new. We're in this transition mode of of interest rate uncertainty, and all right, got to be patient, got to get through it, see where things settle. Uh, but also be poised to to have a project, to have business to do. So being frequently out there looking at opportunities. Well, that's a great answer. I recently heard, uh, speaking of like not keeping you up at night, I recently heard an interview with Matthew McConaughey. And they're like, he said that he sleeps nine hours a night. And the interviewer was Dak Shepard. He was like, he's like, do you not have any fears or anxieties? He's like, no, nah, man. He's like, well, it's just Matthew McConaughey. The rest of us got it. <laughs> I don't worry about these things. He just sleeps like a baby for nine hours straight. Oh, of course. But um, let me throw something at you. Throw something at you is just a concern that I have, and I'm just curious your thoughts on it. And I'm a little worried, and I've got someone coming up with just about office values, especially in the central business district, but I don't know, maybe the suburban is even worse, really declining. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we're starting to see stories of this every day. The Board of Trade, they recently, the owners recently gave it back to uh, the lender. And a lot of that is non-recourse debt. So that's going to be just kind of most people would just hand it back to the lender once their equity is wiped out. And I'm just worried about, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure out all the macroeconomic reverberations that would happen, but just the value of those properties declining. And so the city... You know, just speak to the city, just really needing the real estate tax revenue from elsewhere. If those things, those valuations really get written down and they're not paying the same real estate taxes because the occupancy is so low and that, you know, the rest of us residents and businesses have to pick up the, the slack on the real estate taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the, the great question for the next decade in real estate. Um, that, uh, you know, we, we, we don't touch office. I talk to a lot of, you know, both colleagues here as well as peers throughout the industry about what level of distress we may see in different asset classes over the next couple years. 
where we can find opportunities. Um, you know, we we talked about 2008 and nine, and I was how old was I? I was in my late twenties, right? So I didn't didn't have a dollar to put into anything, and you know, talking to some friends, saying, "Hey, how do we how do we make sure we've got money and we're not just sitting on the sidelines? So when these distressed opportunities come, we can we can be participants." Um, and then we start talking office, and we all kind of throw up our hands. And and we say, oh, the floor plates generally don't work for residential. Even if they do, the costs are just crazy to retrofit these buildings. You see some of the things that I think are, are good for the city to support the kind of LaSalle Avenue uh, or LaSalle Street initiatives with whether it's TIF funding or others, um, just to kind of prop them up. Um, but it's it's more pervasive than a couple buildings, right? That's not going to solve the problem. And it's Right. Clearly coming out of COVID, office occupancies remain, you know, at what half, you know, what they used to be. Um, now, on the other hand, Fulton Market office demand is greater than the supply. There's there's tremendous demand. So we're also seeing just what I call more natural changes in, you know, the attractiveness of where people want to work. You know, it used to be your law firm, you have to have a LaSalle Street address. You know, I grew up in D.C. You had to have a K Street address. That's that's changed over many decades, too, right? It was, okay, River North was okay to be in. You can be in a loft building. You can build across the river. Um, what happens with those empty buildings? I have no idea. It's a great question. Um, and, you know, we're, we see distress also in multifamily, but it's very different from 08 where there was both financial distress and property level distress, right? All the condo stuff that was half built, half sold, that was property level distress. In addition to the financial distress of the sponsor, what we're seeing now is you have sponsors that are having to refinance or, uh, or have you know, loan covenants that they're not complying with that have financial issues, but the underlying property is 96% leased and has had rent growth for five years in a row. So there's there's a different segment here where I think kind of the big financial players with large funds will have the opportunity to step in, refinance, and, and do some good business. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that property level distress yet outside of office um, and probably a little bit of some other industries, but uh, we'll we'll wait and see. No, thank you for, for all of that. That was that was a really great way to, to talk about the market. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. As two USA soccer fans, uh, <laughs> is is Pulisic our, our answer? And uh, now tell us, you have a USA soccer framed, uh, is that like a flag? It's, or a, a, picture it's, a, it's a, what's, I don't know, a banner. It's, it's got a formal name. I don't know what it is. It sits above my head so that people on Zoom calls can say, hey, are you a U.S. soccer fan? And here we are. I love it. Yeah, well done, well played. So uh, that was an accidental pun. Uh, but tell us about <laughs> you know, your involvement with U.S. soccer, and I'd uh, love to hear about that. Yeah, Pulisic is a phenomenal player. Right, he's he's he is he is the guy coming out of this current golden generation. So I, you know, he's had a tough time at Chelsea, but he's performed unbelievably well for our national team. Um, yeah, no, I've I've been a I was you know a, a barely above average soccer player as a kid, so I just had to resort to fandom to keep myself uh, involved. And uh, U.S. Soccer Federation is based in Chicago. Uh, the federation is a not for profit, which most people don't know. 
Um, so they, they see U.S. soccer, U.S. you know, men's team, women's team, youth teams, et cetera. And they think of this, you know, this large, it is a large organization, but it is, at the end of the day, it's a not-for-profit. And so there are several councils, one here based in Chicago, which was the, the first to be created about six, five or six years ago. There's an L.A., a Bay Area, New York, and then an at-large council um, of, you know, business people, quote unquote, that joined together. And so there's 22 of us in Chicago on a, a development council. And, you know, we are here as a resource to U.S. soccer. So if U.S. soccer is doing some endeavor where they need whether it's legal, you know, opinion, of course, they've got lawyers, but, you know, real estate ideas or, you know, tech stuff, there's all different industries on, on these various councils where great connections can be found. Um, and then we otherwise raise money for grassroots U.S. soccer efforts, whether it's youth programs, coaching programs, or even referee programs, although we all don't like referees. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we try and do some things just to supplement and support uh, a lot of great causes that U.S. soccer does that people don't really see um, beneath, beneath headlines of, of whatever else may be happening with the Federation. So it's a great group. Uh, we got game uh, on the 24th at Soldier Field that I, I can't attend because it's my daughter's fourth birthday. And I said to my wife, she won't know if we just celebrate her birthday the night after. She doesn't know what day is the day. And then my wife reminded me that we actually did that last year and didn't tell her which day her birthday was on for some some other event we attended. So unfortunately, I can't attend, but it'll be a it'll be a fun game against Jamaica at Soldier Field. That will be cool. Well, John, thanks for explaining uh, your, your involvement there at the council. It's really cool to hear about. And thanks for telling us all about you know your story and the Belgravia group and your thoughts on the market. It was super interesting. We really appreciate your expertise today. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun, and uh, maybe we'll do it again in a year or two from now. Great time. All right. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 